Sal Berry, and Tim Parrish. This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I am Sal Berry and with me is Tim Parrish. And in this episode, we are going to continue our 90-91 hockey card set retrospective. Dare I call it a setrospective with the 90-91 upper deck hockey card set. Tim, Ooh, I'm so glad we're finally Setrospective. Setrospective, like right? I like that. You better patent that now. Yeah, it's catchy, right? I'm surprised Beckett doesn't already have a column called the Setrospective or something. Mm-hmm. Sounds like something they do. You got to file for the copyright on that and get it on a t-shirt. Yes. We started this series a while ago. Of course, you're listening, if you're listening to these podcasts out of order or you just started listening to it and you're like going through the back catalog, probably no big deal. But those of you may remember that we actually started doing this set retrospective of 1991 back in 2020 to coincide with the 20th anniversary. And here we are two years later because, you know, life gets in the way, things come up, and this is more or less a weekly show. So if we did a show every day, we'd probably run out of sets to cover. Anyway, so 1991 Upper Deck. It was a big deal then. Upper Deck is still a big deal now. They're the only company producing licensed NHL hockey cards. And we're going to talk about what Upper Deck meant back in 1990 when it entered the hockey market, what it meant to hockey collectors, what it meant to the game of hockey, what it meant to the trading card market, what it meant to everything, all of the above. So the set came out around October of 91, if I remember correctly maybe November, like October, November. It was like when hockey season had started. It wasn't like Pro Set that came out before the 1991 season began. It it actually came out in the start of the season. There were 400 low series cards that were distributed in 12 card packs. Remember a pack of cards back then cost about uh, 99 cents a pack, which was about double of what all the other sets were going for. Pro Set, Score, Tops, Bowman, those were going for about 50 cents a pack. Upper Deck was double that. It was a dollar a pack, basically, 99 cents a pack. But anyway, so there were 12 cards per pack. And then in March of 1991, Upper Deck released the High Series. So what happened was is they were still distributed in packs, but now the packs had eight Low Series cards and four high series cards, meaning that if you'd already completed your 400 card set, you were basically buying more packs and you only really needed four cards out of the 12 cards that were in the packs. However, they also did distribute the high series set in a 150 card boxed set. So you were able to just buy that and complete the set as well. A couple other things that are notable, there was a French parallel version of the set that was sold in Canada. Um, We'll talk more about that because that became insanely popular towards the end of the 1991 season. There were nine stereograms that were supposed to be holograms, but they were really stupid. They were like, think about like a, a hologram and a sport flick, like merged together, but not as good, like doing neither. It just kind of looked like a blur, like a ghost of Gretzky or a ghost of Iserman or something. And they weren't very good. Um, And and then, as I have always called them, the witness protection holograms. Right, because you don't know who they are. Correct. 
And if you were like me, you probably tried to peel one off and stick it on something, only realizing that it wasn't a sticker, like the little baseball stickers that they did in their 89 baseball cards. Remember those? Those were fun to stick in places. Yeah, it always cracked me up that you could clearly see the player's body and you could mm-hmm. clearly see with the team that they were on. And that was pretty much the only way you knew who it was because there's nothing on the back. But every single one of them always their faces like blurred out <laughs> like this person is in the witness protection program and you can't know who they are. And then the other thing worth mentioning is that there were 11 collector sheets that were given out at hockey games throughout the season. And these collector sheets, they weren't like uncut sheets of cards. They're basically an eight and a half by 11 page that had cards printed on them, but they were like scaled down version of upper deck cards. So they seemed almost more like a sell sheet for the product. I mean, they weren't, but that's what they were. I mean, they were basically like, here's a bunch of, yeah, I mean, that was it, you know, and upper deck was very clever about aligning itself with the NHL and involving itself with the NHL, either by sponsoring the All-Star Game in 91-92, I mean, that was a year later, or putting their advertisements up on the boards. So, Tim, you were collecting hockey cards pretty regularly at this time. What was your memory of the 90-91 Upper Deck Hockey Set? That was the game changer. I mean, that, that there's not much to say other than that. I mean, it changed the way hockey cards looked it changed the way hockey cards felt it changed the way you collected the cards it changed the way you bought the cards absolutely everything and every aspect about this set was a game changer across the board you never had packs really out there to buy that cost this much so you bought the cards and it actually felt like wow, I got my money's worth because these are fancy cards. They're nice cardstock. There's color pictures on the front and the back. There's little holograms on them. You know, the photo quality on these, like the pictures that they chose to use for the photos on the fronts and the backs was outstanding. There was nothing out there that matched this. You were so used to up to this point having airbrushed photos of players and, you know, players with their hair helmets you know, painted on the cards. This was one of the first sets that was at this level to have photos that were just out of this world. They were like straight out of a magazine. That's exactly right. And actually, Upper Deck had a special printing process, whereas other companies were printing cards like they had always printed cards. Upper Deck was printing these like they were trying to print them like a magazine i mean i think that they went with a company that was doing color separations for architectural digest or one of those popular high quality magazines of the time so i mean they really raised the game raised the level of print quality and you're right also the photo selection i think like if we had a nice looking hockey card in the 80s It was in focus, it was colorful, and maybe it had a pretty cool picture on it, but that seemed to be the exception and not the rule. And here it seemed like every photo on one of these cards, I mean, there are boring photos that we would look at and go, well, it's still a good photo, it's in focus, it's colorful, it's it's of the player, but 
I mean, some are better than others, obviously. I'm looking at one of Lee Norwood, and he's just kind of coasting. Not a great card. But then on the back, he's doing a hockey stop. So that's exciting. And that was the thing, is that having a photo on the front and on the back of each card, it gave them room to like do like maybe a more traditional photo and then to do something a little more exciting. Like I've always liked the Dave Manson card from 1991 Upper Deck because it's a close-up of him. But then on the back, there's like a game action photo. So that's cool. Or like Basil McRae, I mean, on the front, he's just kind of standing, maybe shouting at the referee or at a teammate or somebody. But then on the back, there's game action. So, I mean, these were great cards for the time. And I think what really excited me was... By 1989, when Upper Deck had come out with its baseball set, I was a casual baseball collector. January of 89 is when I got into hockey. Started collecting hockey cards maybe at the end of that month or early next month, right? But then I remember like when the baseball cards came out, I bought a lot of 89 tops because I could get it at my grocery store and it was easy to come by. And I bought a lot of 89 Upper Deck when I could find it. The candy store by my house had it and they were a dollar a pack. And we'd buy them and we'd trade them in the schoolyard. But then I remember the card and coin shop that I'd go to were selling Upper Deck Baseball for $3 a pack. And I would still buy them at $3 a pack because I was like, well, these are really nice cards. And the candy store ran out of them. I didn't know that like the card shops were buying them from the candy stores and then marking up the price 300%. But, you know, it's like you get what you pay for. And when you really like the cards, you buy them. So even though I was kind of a casual baseball fan... I really loved the cards. So then I remember in 1990, when I heard that Upper Deck was going to make hockey cards, I was like over the moon excited because I'm like, wow, the best card company is going to make cards of my favorite sport. Like, this is great. I mean, Pro Set and Score were like basically better versions of Tops and Opeachy cards. Like they were like Tops and Opeachy cards, but they were just better. Color on both sides, better photos, better print quality. But I want to say that Upper Deck was like three times better. Do you know what I mean? Like if Pro Set and Score were a step up, this was like the next flight of stairs up, if that makes sense. And I'm I'm not trying to sound like I'm kissing up to Upper Deck. I'm just talking about how much better they were back then with everything. I mean, even the little tamper-proof hologram on the back was a game changer and that was something that you just never saw in trading cards before i mean even before you look at the cards if you laid those all next to each other here's a pack of pro set a pack of score and a pack of upper deck you got two that are wrapped in some weird plastic cellophane that you can barely open and you get ink on your fingers trying to rip them open or you got this nice pack that's made out of foil it's fancy i mean right there you already know you're getting something quality Well, think about it. It's like when you have a Toblerone chocolate bar and it comes in that little box and then it's like wrapped in the foil. Like the nice foil. I have never eaten one of those. Not really. Not ever. I always assume those were like, like as a kid, I remember those were like the candy bars that you could only get at the airport. From there, like then you'd start to see them in stores and stuff. I've never had one. I don't even know what they are. I assume it's chocolate. They're, They're chocolate, but they're shaped like triangles. They're like little, like, you break them off, so that's why they're in a triangular box. They're like triangular shaped. It's like a tube, but a tube of triangles, right? Uh, and you break one off, and it's a triangle. 
Um, I always my, assumed that it was just like a giant Tootsie Roll, and I never wanted it. Kind of, but no, the chocolate was like really good. I remember one summer, well, every summer, my uh, uncle, he had an old fire truck, and he would put it in the Elmwood Park 4th of July parade. And me and my friends, we would go on the truck, and we'd throw candy to people while we were on the parade truck, which was just an old 1950s fire truck, so whatever. But it was fun. And I remember... One year, somebody had given him all these Toblerone candies for us to throw off the truck. Now, if you think about it at the time, a Hershey's bar, like a full-size Hershey's bar, was like maybe 50 cents. And these were like maybe $2 each. So they were like expensive candy bars. And we're throwing these. Like, you can hurt somebody with one. I was going to say, it's like throwing like a javelin off the truck. Dude, these were heavy. And I remember like... Before the parade, I called my mom and aunt over and we stuffed as many as we could in their purse. And <laughs> it was crazy. But yeah, I mean, that's that's what Upper Deck cards were like. They were like the high-end fancy chocolate. I mean, going back to talking about the wrappers that they came in were like those foil wrappers and you couldn't see through them and you couldn't search them and you couldn't reseal them like you could a reseal a Topps pack or an OPG pack or a Bowman pack. And you could search the score and the later pro set packs. So the fact that you couldn't do any of that, you couldn't mess with these cards. And even the wrapper was like stiffer. It was like a stiff foil paper. So that kept the cards nicer. So, I mean, yeah, everything from the wrapping on in was great with these cards. Yeah. And, and again, you know, once, once you opened them up, I mean, you saw that you were getting something that you hadn't seen before. It was certainly something to really make you think about the other things that were out there and the direction that that cards, I guess, were heading. You know, maybe as a kid, you didn't think so much about it, but definitely looking back on it, you can kind of see how impactful it was on how things were done from that point forward. Right. And I mean, I was kind of used to decent photography on baseball cards because baseball's outdoors photographed outdoors you have way better light when you're outside it's like no pun intended but it's like night and day from photographing outside to photographing inside it's just so much easier when you have the sun lighting up (laughs) the baseball field uh so i mean even in the 80s you could get good baseball cards that had good action because you had good lighting and in hockey it was hard because you had rinks that didn't have the photography lights or like the sufficient lighting for photographers, which is why we tended to get a lot of the photos from like the same handful of rinks or the pictures would be dark. So yeah, this was definitely, it was crazy. I mean, one of my favorite cards of all time is this card of King's backup goalie, Mario Gosselin, and it's taken from overhead. And uh, I'll definitely put a link to it in the comments because I've, I've written about this card before. But, I mean, you can see that the puck is on his pad and his leg is right along the goal line. So he's doing everything to keep that puck out of the goal. I mean, which is what a goalie does. But, I mean, you could literally see how close that puck is to crossing the goal line. And then even the photo on the back, is ridiculous because he sprawled out making a stick save. And so if that was on the front of the card, you'd be like, wow, that's a great photo. But compared to the photo on the front, it's just like, oh, okay, another overhead shot and he's making another save. But 
this is still like today one of my favorite cards of all time just because it's such a badass photo and that's the thing is that Gosselin was the backup goalie for the Kings and here we have this badass photo of the backup goalie but it didn't matter who it was I mean you have some mundane photos of star players and by mundane I mean they're not like doing something ridiculous and then you have ridiculous photos of the average players and that's okay like I'm looking at like the Paul Coffey card and he's just kind of like looking off to the side he's wearing the captaincy which is kind of interesting I guess Mario was uh, sick that day but you know he's just kind of looking off to the side it's it's a nice photo it's in focus you can see him you can recognize him the color is brilliant it, I think he's not, looking up at the scoreboard looking up at the scoreboard yeah yeah it's not like a great exciting photo but it's still cool you know I mean the whole set is like that. The whole set is like that. You know, you look at that one, you go, eh, that one's okay. But then you look at like the Mario Lemieux card where you're like literally looking up at him because he's 6'4". It's a photo of him that's low. So you're looking up at this guy who just looks like a tree. Yeah, I think that was taken from the edge of the door from the runway mm-hmm. walking out onto the ice. I think the cameraman was like, break down low and he was just snapping shots of everybody as they jumped onto the ice. But then he always liked that one because he looks like a giant. But then even on the back, there's like a photo of Lemieux and his reflection in the glass. That's always a cool picture. Yeah. And that's the thing is that they loaded these up with cool pictures. I think that's why I'm kind of a little bummed that upper deck cards are not like this anymore, where if they have a photo on the back, it's like a headshot in the small and it might be the same photo. It might be a different photo, but it's not like, back in the day where they had two photos of almost every player on every card. I hesitate to say the word lazy, but look at how production costs have gone up over the years. And I imagine, you know, the royalties that they have to pay for photos and everything else is all taken into consideration with that. And then other factors of the design, what they have to have on the card versus what they didn't have to have. Cause I mean, we're talking 1990 here versus today. It was the Wild West back then. You know, there weren't really rules per se. I know you didn't mean lazy. Maybe what you meant to say or maybe Yeah, I said that's not the best word. No, no, no. Formulaic, I think, is the word. Everything is very formulaic now. You know what I mean? Like, they're going to have a photo of the player from the waist up, and they're going to reiterate the headshot on the back. It's like it's almost very scripted. Like, the upper deck cards of today are nice cards they look great and they have all the same things as before clear photos bright colors etc but there seems to be a little bit of that randomness that's missing you know like some of the cool stuff that we were able to get in these sets like okay this was the debut of young guns in the high series this is the first time we had young guns but i mean there was also a team canada junior team set There were all-star cards, and there were also heroes of hockey cards. Oh, and then there were the hand-painted checklists. Well, painted checklists of, uh, you know, had a star player on the front, and then on the back it had the checklist, at least for the low series, because the high series was printed later on. So you kind of had, like, all these fun different things that you really don't have anymore. They're not going to put the money into painted cards, and if they do, they're going to save it for something like Goodwin Champions, They can't really do the junior team as part of the NHL set, but they do it as its own separate set, Team Canada as its own set. 
all-stars, we sometimes get all-star players in all-star uniforms, but we really don't get cards of legends in uh, mainstream hockey sets. Usually now they're their own standalone set that like pays tribute to the legend players from past seasons. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a variety, uh, certainly, within that set checklist. Like, as you mentioned, the, the young guns in there. How many young guns are actually on the set checklist? Is it 15? Uh, I'll tell you. There are actually... 15 plus some, the checklist, I think? 15 plus the checklist, right? There's yeah. also, just a few, just throw out a few numbers here. I already have them jotted down. 15 young guns plus a checklist. 15 heroes of hockey. It's 14 plus a checklist. 26 cards from the 91 All-Star Game. Now, mind you, the 91 All-Star Game happened in January of 91. It was mid-January of 91. These came out in early April, late March or early April of 91. So Upper Deck was literally turning these around about six weeks after. Got all of February, all of March. So, okay, that's maybe eight weeks. So about 10 weeks. If you think about that, that's crazy that like the All-Star Game happened in middle of January and then in early April. Oh, here are some photos from that All-Star Game that just happened 10 weeks ago, right, on cards that you could buy now. Normally, we'd wait a year and then we'd get cards from what happened in the previous season. But we were getting cards from stuff that had happened earlier that year, including cards of players that had been traded. Let's see. Oh, and then uh, 10 draft pick cards and 21 team checklists. What about the Team Canada cards? 23 Team Canada cards. Oh, including including Upper Deck. Including the controversial one? Yeah, Upper Deck trolling score. You want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's on the uh, it's on the checklist card, right? It is. Uh, no, it is a separate card called Canada's Captains. Oh, the Canada Captain card. That's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So Canada's Captains has a player on it that had no business being on an upper deck card at that time, and that player is future Hall of Famer at the time, Eric Lindros. And there's a story behind. I mean, I guess there's kind of a story behind that about him putting out being included in there because Score had, I guess it would be an exclusive at the time with Eric just to be the, what's the word? Spokesperson Spokesperson. or yeah, spokes image person. I don't, I don't know what you would call that. What the draw was for that was only Score could picture Lindros on cards not counting a junior card, not ju- counting junior cards. So seventh inning sketch was able to include Lindros in its sets. The uh, Oshawa Generals were able to include Lindros in their team issued sets. And Classic actually was able to include Lindros in its draft pick set. But as far as NHL cards were concerned, only score could issue Lindros cards until he played in the NHL and then was a member of the Players Association and then Anybody could make his card. So Score did the future superstars card of Lindros at the end of their 90-91 set. And Upper Deck included a card of him and the other two team captains for uh, the junior Canadian team from the uh, World Junior Championship. Oh, and they called it Canada's Captains. So it is technically not an Eric Lindros card. He just happens to appear on it. And his profile on the back of the card takes up like two thirds of the card back. Yeah, I guess you could call it the 
ultimate troll job. <laughs> well, I mean, that's I the thing. It's just deck. like, well, we're it's not like, making an Eric Lindros card. We're making a Canada's captain's card. And he just happens to be one of the team captains for Team Canada. So he's on this card. It's like, screw you. We're going to do this anyway. We can't feature a card and like slap his name on the front and be exclusive to him. Okay, we'll find a way around it. We'll just put him on here just in the background enough. That it's not technically his card. Well, no, it's the but thing, it's though. kind of his card. He's not in the background, though. That's the thing. It's a card of Chris Draper, Stephen Rice, and Eric Lindros. And so you got the three of them, and, you know, he's takes up like a third of the card on the front. He takes up more than a third. If you look at the way they're positioned, I mean, they're positioned by height. So you got Draper, who's, by comparison, kind of short, right? Yep. And so Draper's over on the far left, and as you go across, they get taller. But if you notice how Lindros is kind of turned on the card, he takes up a bigger portion of that space. That's true. But then you look at the bios on the back, and he takes up like oh, yeah. half the card. Yeah, he's, so he's half the bio. Upper Deck knew what they were doing when they made this card. They're like, you know what? We're going to put him in. He's a highly touted prospect. He's going to go first overall in 91 we want to have a card of him in the set. So they found a way to include him. I don't think they did the whole World Junior Championship set just to have a card of him, but I guess they had to find a way to put him in, and that's how they did it. You know what I should mention, though? Some of the other notable rookie cards. There's a lot of rookie cards in this set. Like but 170 so, or something. Something like that, yeah, because you have guys who never had a hockey card before, and they ended up in the set. You have draft picks. That's the rookie cards. You have star rookies. You have young guns. So you have first round draft picks. You have star rookies. You have young guns. And then you have players who just never had a card before. And then you have like good players from 89-90. Like some of the notable rookie cards, Ed Belfour, Sergei Fedorov, Yaramir Yager, Pavel Bure, Scott Niedermeyer, Darian Hatcher. You know, and then you got guys who like were rookies in 89-90, like Jeremy Roenick and Alexander McGilney and Mike Modano. There is also a Frank Zamboni card yes. in the set. First time that... Cards. Yeah, one of the... Uh, I think that's the first time that he was on a hockey card, so I counted it as, as his rookie card, even though he's not a hockey player. He's pretty much been a part of every hockey game, oh, I don't know, in the past, you know, 75 years or whatever. Oh, and then just one other one I'll throw out. This is the only set to have a rookie card of Daryl Ray. Really? Yeah. He doesn't have a pro set? No. Huh. Weird. I'm a, doesn't have a pro set or a score. He's in 91-92 Bowman and Stadium Club. Only uh, Upper Deck made a card of him in 90-91. And that was the other thing, too, is that they were able to kind of look, you know, they were able to say, oh, okay, Chris Chelios and Dennis Savard were traded. Dale Howardchuk and uh, Phil Housley were traded. Let's make cards of them in their new uniforms. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other guys who were traded. Oh, Kerry Taco, which I think is funny because he's just sitting on the Edmonton Oilers bench. Yeah. And then the high series, you had like the juniors, the all-stars, the heroes, and then like a handful of like traded guys uh, at the end. And then some guys that just were randomly put in there. Let's talk about the French cards, because this was such a big deal. So I had to reread some parts of the book Card Sharks, which I recommend everybody go out and find. It's out of print, 
but it won't cost you a lot of money. It's a history of sports cards, but a lot of it has to do with how Upper Deck became like the biggest company on the block. It was written in 95, so it's outdated. Like it doesn't have anything from 1995 forward. But what it does have, I mean, it has everything going back to the late 1800s all the way up to Upper Deck basically becoming the industry leader. So what happened was, was that somebody at Upper Deck wanted to make hockey cards in French. They didn't think they were going to be good sellers because they only had one distributor and the distributor was in Toronto. Like their Canadian distribution was not so good. And if you recall, their American distribution, at least for their first year, was not very good either, which is why people couldn't find their cards when they first came out with baseball cards because they struggled with distribution. Tops and Fleer and Donruss, they were candy companies. So they had all the candy company distribution channels to distribute their cards, which is why you're able to find them everywhere. Upper Deck didn't have that inroad like the other companies did. I mean, even ProSet, they worked with the distributor of tobacco products, which is why you were able to find ProSet cards everywhere, right? Upper Deck didn't have those inroads that the other companies had already established. So they did the set of Upper Deck French, and it didn't really sell very well. So they're like, all right, well, we're doing the high number of cards, and let's do something to try to drum up some interest in the French cards. So they said, let's only produce 620 cases of the high series French cards. And then they leaked that information out. So then when dealers caught wind that there were only 620 cases of high series upper deck French hockey cards, the price went up dramatically, like almost as soon as it came out. So just to give some quick math, 24 boxes per case, 36 packs, 12 cards per pack. There was only four high series cards per pack. So that meant there were 200, excuse me, 2,142,720 high series cards or about 14,284 of each card. So when you saw that 9091 Upper Deck High Series Sergei Fedorov French card that was selling for $30, or $50, it's because presumably there were only 14,000 of that card made because this is based on getting four high series cards per pack, there was 150 in the set, and there were 620 cases. A 24 box case of high series French was selling for $10,000 in June of 91. So that's how high it had shot up. Now, what Upper Deck did was they reprinted the French high series hockey cards in May of 91. Initial production dates were March 28th and 29th of 91. And then in May of 91, they did another printing of 960 cases. Now, the first batch of cases that went out had the May production date stamped on side of the boxes because the people in the production you know they just did what they were doing they just did what they were always supposed to do you know you're printing these okay you're printing these you stamp the date on the box what upper deck did was then they retroactively went back and they if they didn't ship the case out they basically re-boxed it with a case that was stamped march 28th or march 29th of 1991 to make it look like they were 
from the initial printing. However, there was one important difference, and that difference was that the packs had six high number cards per pack instead of four. So what this did now is this gave us 4,976,640 more high series cards or about 33,177 cards each. So then that means that you had uh, about 47,462 of each card. So you see how in the beginning of that cycle, it's like, oh, there's like 14,000 of these Sergei Fedorov cards. And now it's like, well, there's 47,000 of them. So to say that 9091 Upper Deck French is rare, eh, it's rare in the sense that there's less of them, like 47,000 of a particular card instead of, say, a million. But still 47,000 of anything is a lot. I mean, could you imagine if a card company numbered something one out of 47,000, two out of 47,000? Kind of like how Classic did, like one out of 25,000. And we kind of thought that was ridiculous back in the day. Yeah, I mean, that was even before cards were regularly serial numbered. We even thought those counts were kind of crazy back then. Right. Wow, this is only one out of 50,000. And then you think... 50,000, that's not a low number. <laughs> no. But then when you consider that there were tens of millions of them made, eh, it, it's relative. I guess one out of 47,000 back then would be the same as like one out of 999 today. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. 999 doesn't, it seems like a ton, but really it's less than a thousand. But we're talking 47,000. Now everything is... One out of nine ninety nine plus the next color that's seven ninety nine and the next color that's six ninety nine and the other color that's four ninety nine right and so on and so forth so there's still millions they're just different colors right you know one other little tidbit I'll throw out there is that employees of Upper Deck were allowed to buy a case of the high series French hockey for four hundred and seven dollars a case but they were that's told weird. that they. Yeah, well, that's the find thing. that out? Was that from, in the book? From Card Sharks. Oh, okay. He talked to a lot of former employees, and, and so they were allowed to buy them for 407 per case. Oh, if they were a board member, they could buy 50 cases. If they were just a regular employee, they could buy 14 cases. But the caveat was you had to wait a year before selling them. So it, oh. which some did and some didn't. And the ones that did were mad about it because the value of them went down dramatically. I mean, one guy talked about going to French-speaking parts of Africa to give away Upper Deck French cards. Like, they were trying to promote hockey and Upper Deck cards in other countries. They're like, here, take some French cards to Africa and, you know, give them the the French-speaking children there, right? Even though they weren't really into hockey, it was just something, you know, with French text on it, right? Try to get some interest that way. Well, he didn't give away all the cards that he had. They gave him five cases to give away. He only gave away three cases worth of the cards. He sold the other two cases for $10,000 per case, even though he wasn't supposed to. It's just like, well, what was I going to do with it? It was worth something at the time. Um, it's a boatload of money, though, if you think about it, because $407 in 1991, that's like $850 today. Right. Yeah. So and, it's not necessarily cheap. And as I was telling you before we jumped on the air, a few months back, Golden Auction sold part of a case. Of course, these were low number and they weren't the French, but today a case went for 
270 with a buyer's premium. It wasn't a full case, but it was 17 boxes. So about 15, 16 bucks a box. Yeah. So, I mean, really, if you look at the difference in inflation, you made pretty good money off of getting one for 407 and unloading it for thousands. Yeah, absolutely. Just some interesting little uh, tidbits there. I remember at the time, Upper Deck French cards going for 10 times more than their English counterparts and dealers telling me how rare these cards were. And this wasn't even necessarily the high series stuff. It was just that I'd see a Jeremy Roenick card and it was 15 bucks. And I said to the dealer, I go, oh, I have that card. I didn't know it was worth 15 bucks. He's like, oh, no, that's the French version. I'm like, French version? And he's like, yeah, they only printed so many cases of these or whatever. This is a conversation I vaguely remember from 30-ish years ago. But I still remember it because like, when you see a card in a case and you're like, I have that card. I didn't know it was worth that much. I thought it was only worth a buck fifty, not fifteen dollars. But then this guy had like all of them, you know, and he had like the Sergey Fedorov for like thirty, forty dollars, and the Yager was probably, I don't know, twenty five dollars or something. I, I can't remember. Not where I was from. Well, I'm the, sure it was that Yager was a hundred and fifty bucks. Really? Yeah, because we used to see the French ones on occasion at some of the local card shops, and there were plenty of them back then. You always could tell the French ones because, of course, you'd have to look at the back to see that all the printing was in French. They'd be in the cases with the front, and you always knew you were looking at a French one other than the price tag because they were the skinny text cards. So that was the one giveaway. That and the player position was in French. But if you weren't really looking for that, you just had to see the print and see that it was skinny print rather than the thicker, bolder type printing that the regular English versions had. But yeah, oh, the Yager rookie card was was ridiculously priced in the Pittsburgh area back then because everybody well, wanted it. Well, what was the English Yager selling for in Pittsburgh back in 91? Back then, easily in the 30 to $50 range. Wow. See, because in Chicago, it was like a $5 card. I remember finding one for a buck and a quarter at a comic shop and buying it because... It was $5 everywhere else, but I'd go to a show, it was like a $5 card. You could still get it in packs, though. So that was like the funny thing, is that you could spend $5 on a card and also buy a couple of packs and then get that same card in the pack that you just bought. But I remember it being like a $5 card and just being like, yes, I found this $5 card for a buck and a quarter. Yay, I'm awesome. But I mean, even like the Ronick rookie wasn't worth that much in Chicago for some reason. See, I remember going to the 1993 National that was at McCormick Place in Chicago. Yep. And I bought four Yager rookies. And I spent, I promise you, I spent no less than 50 bucks. Really? And that was in 93. Interesting. Yeah. So did I get ripped off? Absolutely. But back then, I mean, eh, it's kind of what it was. So you bought four of these cards? Back, Back then, then, yeah. yeah. You didn't, like, get any from PAX a couple of years a, before? I had a few. You just needed a few more. Exactly. Needed enough to fill out that nine-pocket page. That's absolutely right. You know, one fun fact about the Yager card is that it was actually spoofed in the Deadpool set that Upper Deck put out. They put out these cards of the comic anti-hero Deadpool 
And there is a subset called Sports Ball, where Deadpool is reenacting famous sports cards. Like there's the Shaquille O'Neal upper deck rookie card where he's like doing the slam dunk, but it's like the three photos that are superimposed over one another, only it's Deadpool. And then there's another one where he's shaking hands with somebody, like he's just been drafted by the Penguins, but he's wearing a jersey with a taco on it instead of a Penguins jersey. It's kind of funny. Do I have that? I don't think I have that card. I've seen it. I don't think I have it. Yeah, I finally got my hands on one of those. So I can sleep a little better at night knowing that I have the Deadpool card that riffs on the Yager rookie card. It was from one of the Upper Deck Marvel sets. 2018 Deadpool set. Oh, okay. And then it was a subset called Sports Ball. I remember that. I don't have the card, though. I don't have to get that to find it and get it. It's like a 3 to $5 card, if that. Okay, cool. It's not rare by any sense. You want to talk about the hologram variations? Because this is something that I don't know a lot about, and it's honestly something I don't care about, so I never bothered to learn about it. You should care about everything about this. I know, right? Yeah, so Upper Deck used different holograms on the back of the cards, but you you need a microscope to tell the difference. So, Not so much you need a microscope, but you definitely need some different lighting positions to be able to pull the hologram a certain way so you can tell which version of the hologram it is. Commonly printed on the backs, the hologram is the 1990-style hockey hologram, which shows mm-hmm. the upper deck text with a large number 90 yes. printed on it. And you'll also, if you turn it a certain way, see crossed hockey sticks in the background. That's the most prevalent one that you'll find. So that would be the standard hologram. Now, we're talking about the hologram on the back of the card, the upper deck hologram. So there's also a 91-style And the 91 style is multiple lines of the words upper deck. And you'll see 91 kind of mixed into that, those lines. Upper and deck are kind of a line going different directions too. So the difference between the 90 and the 91 is pretty distinctive. You can tell the difference. Now, there's other patterns that exist within these. One of those being that some of the cards got released with the comic ball stickers uh so the comic ball design if you don't know what we're talking about upper deck had a set that was called comic ball comic ball which came out around that time like 1991 had looney tune characters playing baseball with major league baseball stars those also had holograms on the back but their holograms essentially they had not really a comic ball logo, but it was an upper deck logo. And they kind of had like like little triangular carrot looking things mm-hmm. on it. But that's the comic ball logo. And you'll find that on some, believe it or not, you'll find that on some of these cards as well. Then, in addition to that, there is baseball versions. So... On the baseball version, it's actually the baseball background. So it's the sticker from the baseball release. So in the back of the hologram, with the superimposed upper deck that's in the foreground, the background hologram part is a picture of a baseball. And you'll actually find that on some versions of these cards. 
So there's four main distinct versions of the hologram. Now, people have said that there's others out there as well. Um, you know, I've seen different cards where it looks like there isn't a hologram or it's just a silver thing. And no matter which way you turn it in the light, you can't pick anything up. I've seen them without the hologram completely. That's another variation that's out there where the hologram just was left off, whether that was on purpose or whether it was an actual printing error, mm -hmm. which I'm sure it was a printing error. That happens. I encountered a collector not that long ago. I think it was like last year that I ran into on Trading Card DB that was trying to collect every version of every card he could find from 9091 that did not have the hologram on the back. He had well over 300 cards of probably two or three dozen players of missing holograms on the back. So to put that in perspective, as we go back to your numbers, where you were only talking about the high series, 2 million and 4 million, well, take that number and probably, I don't know, multiply it by 100 <laughs> to come up with how many there are for the regular English low series release. I don't know. I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but I bet it's not that much exaggeration. You know, there's those variations. So if you're the completist, I would definitely not recommend going and trying to build full sets of all the different ones. But if you like to build team sets, it's something else to chase, especially if you're bored with looking for other things. Okay, I got a whole team set of this hologram and a whole team set of that hologram. So it's, it's definitely something to go after. Kind of similar if you were chasing after all the errors in ProSet. And there are obviously people that do that. But yeah, the different holograms on the back. When I found out about this, this was probably, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I found out about the different... I never really paid attention to it in all those years of having the cards. And then I read about it on a forum one time, and I started paying attention. I was flipping the backs over on every single one. I'm like, huh, that's a 91. That's a 90. That's a 91. Here's a couple 90s I'm going through. And I don't know that I ever found a comic ball one. I did find a few baseball ones, but I've never found a comic ball one. I've seen them, but I've never found one myself. So I think if anything, that kind of just hints at like when that particular card was printed earlier in the print run or later in the print run. Oh, I'm sure. The only thing it could be is they were printing, right? And mm -hmm. they had to have run out of the hologram stickers. I mean, what other thing would it be? And it'd be like, crap, we still got to print another 75 cases on this print run. Right. So let me grab this one. And so we're slapping these on. Oh, but that's baseball. Oh, well, too late. Right. You just and need so, to put some hologram so that it's anti-tamper proof or anti-counterfeit. Right. Right. You know, if you PC a player or a team or whatever, it's definitely variations, more variations that you can uh, certainly chase after. Another thing I'd like to talk about, and when I bring this up, are the promo cards of Gretzky and Wah. So a Wayne Gretzky promo card and a Patrick Wah promo card. Initially, these were given out at the National Sports Collectors Convention in 1990. And when they were given out at the National, they came in a special plastic holder. 
a double screw down, if you will. A double screw down, yes. And it's a 1990 Upper Deck National Hockey League prototype cards. The convention that year was in Arlington, Texas in July 1990, uh, roughly four months before Upper Deck hockey would hit the shelves. Now, of course, these use different photographs than the Gretzky and Wah cards. There's other slight little differences. Uh, the funny thing, though, is that the cards list them both as six inches tall and not six feet tall. So kind of just a funny little typo that, you know, you have to be squinting to see. I love that photo of Gretzky in the black Jofa helmet. I like that card a lot. And I like the prototype photo of Wah. He's a nice chest up shot where he's got the glove right by his chest. Like he's ready to flare it out. Um, I think both of those photos are the better photos than the ones they used. They chose to put in the actual set. Yeah, and I think the reason why they must have uh, done that is because they probably wanted the promo to look different than the actual card. Like, if they looked almost identical, but the only difference was was that, oh, they corrected the one typo, it probably wouldn't have that much excitement about it. I mean, I kind of feel that way about the score promos that use the same photos that they did on the actual cards. It's just like, oh, okay... This one has the logos on the back are different sizes than what they were later on. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like a super exciting promo. It's like when you want a promo card, you want something that looks a lot different, you know, that's noticeable. And so they're noticeable. They have better photos on the promos. But then Card Sharks also talked about how the cards were allegedly reprinted by Upper Deck. So you can actually find a lot of these cards for sale uh, on eBay. They're not particularly hard to find, but they are hard to find in the screw-down holder. Because if you went to the National, you got the two cards in the double screw-down holder. And if you buy the two cards loose, chances are they were ones that were printed later and then put out into the secondary market. One question I've always had about the prototypes, and I've never been able to get a straight answer about it, and maybe you have the answer. So when they were issued at the show to be given out in the case, how were they oriented in the case? Gretzky on the left and Wah on the right, or vice versa? Because um, I've seen them both ways. Then I'm going to assume it's both ways, because... Well, I've seen them both ways, which causes me to question if they were opened by someone, and then put back together but put back in the wrong order because i've seen it enough times one way and the other that i don't know what the actual way was so it makes me wonder was there an actual way or is it just random i don't Does know it matter probably not but i'm just saying you know i have the prototypes in the screw down holder because i wanted to get that holder because I like to collect the weird, rare, offbeat stuff like that. Like, oh, prototype cards, cool. Oh, but in the special holder that they came in, way cooler, right? And I remember a couple of years back, maybe the National in 21, I believe, I saw a dealer who had them, and I asked him about them. I wasn't really interested in buying them off of them. I just said to him, I said, did you get these cards back in 1990? And he goes, yes, I did. And I said, oh, did you buy them? Did you get that? You know, I wanted to know, like, the story. And so he said that Upper Deck, back in 1990, gave the dealers the prototype cards. Like, they were given out to people who came to the show. 
but they were also given to the dealers because they wanted dealers to buy their hockey cards. So you got to get it in the hands of the dealers, right? Because they look at it and they go, wow, these look really nice. Okay, put me down for five cases or whatever. But he talked about how nice Upper Deck treated the dealers back then. He said, I remember they had a dinner for us that night. He says, we're, we're card dealers. And they invite us to like this dinner, like this banquet or whatever. Now, I wasn't taking notes, but I was listening pretty attentively. And he's like, you got to understand. He's like, for years, we struggled with tops to sell us sports trading cards because tops only really wanted to deal with the candy uh, market. They wanted to deal with the drug stores and the grocery stores and the candy stores. That's who they wanted to deal with. They didn't want to deal with the card shops. The card shops were going and buying the stuff from the drug stores and then reselling it in their stores. So he talked about how you had like the bigger companies who didn't want to deal with the card shops, but then you had Upper Deck who wanted to deal with the card shops. And then they even wanted to like be nice to them and like have a dinner for them and stuff. And I just thought that was a really cool story about how this new card company was really trying to woo the card sellers that piggybacks on what you were saying earlier, that the fact that they didn't have the distribution pole. If you can't get the distributors to carry your product, what better way to help boost that than to wine and dine all the dealers? And so the dealers go to the distributors and they're like, hey, I want this product. Get me this product. You know, sometimes you push from the top down. Other times you push from the bottom up. And that was kind of like Upper Deck's strategy at the time. I mean... By 91, I do remember finding these cards in grocery stores. Like, I remember 89 Baseball. I could not find it at my grocery store. I was able to find it at candy stores and in card stores. By the I time, don't remember 89 Upper Deck being in anywhere but hobby shops. Yeah. Like, no. I never found it anywhere. Like, there were plenty of Giant Eagles and Foodlands and everything else that you could buy all sorts of stuff in. But Upper Deck was never one of them. But by 1990? By 1990, as far as like the hockey goes, you saw the hockey almost everywhere at a certain point. Maybe not in the very beginning, but I would say by midsummer, it was everywhere. Well, I mean, I remember that fall finding upper deck hockey at card and comic shops and at grocery stores and at drug stores. I mean, it was pretty much everywhere almost immediately. One other thing I want to bring up is that. Upper Deck gave out 11 different collector sheets during the 1991 season. I know I mentioned that before, how they were kind of like not uncut sheets, but they were just basically like like an advertisement almost. What's interesting about some of these is that sometimes they have different photos than what's pictured on the actual cards. So like, let me give you a for instance. They gave out two at the 91 All-Star Game which I was lucky enough to go to because it was at the old Chicago stadium when the Chicago Blackhawks or Chicago hosted the all-star game. So the Wales conference sheet has all the Wales conference starters, Bork, Tockett, Coffee, Sackick, Neely, and Wah. And it uses pictures of their cards and it's numbered out of 15,000 sheets. The Campbell conference all-star sheet has Gretzky, Chelios, Hall, Robitaille, McInnes, and Vernon. However, remember, Chelios was traded in the offseason 
from the Montreal Canadiens to the Chicago Blackhawks. So his card in 90-91 upper deck low series pictures him as a Montreal Canadian, but that wouldn't have made sense to use that card or a picture of that card on the collector sheet. So the collector sheet, they kind of mocked up a card of him in a red Blackhawks jersey from earlier that season. And I remember thinking, oh my God, that is so cool. That's what the Chelios card is going to look like when it comes out. But when Upper Deck High Series came out, it actually used an entirely different photo of Chelios. So it's kind of like a, I don't know how you say it. It's not a promo card. It's kind of like an alternate universe version of a card that actually never happened, if that makes sense. Whereas the other cards pictured on this are just scaled down versions of the cards that you got in low series. Yeah, it's a preview image with an asterisk, and in the fine print it says, may or may not be the actual card. Right, but I remember getting these. They gave you one as soon as you walked into Chicago Stadium. I don't know how I ended up with four of them. I think I ended up with two of each. I'm not quite sure how that happened. I think I found one under a seat. I mean, we were given them And I actually framed them. They were framed and hanging in my living room forever. I don't know why, but I found a black frame and a white frame that were big enough for them, and I put them in the frames. But then what's also kind of neat is they did them for some of the teams. They did a couple for the Red Wings. They did one for the Kings, one for the Maple Leafs. Now, here's what's interesting, is that they did like three of them for the Rangers. Now, They did so many of them for the Rangers that they ran out of players that actually had upper deck hockey cards made of them. So they like made cards. I'm using air quotes. They made cards to put on these commemorative sheets of guys who actually didn't have cards in that set. And those players are Bob Froese, Jody Hall, Paul Broughton, Dennis Viel, and Lindy Ruff. They also made a Norman Rochefort card, but it used a different photo than the card that was actually on his 9091 Upper Deck set. So again, it's kind of like if there was an Upper Deck Series 3, these are what those cards might have looked like. If they said, hey, you know what, let's put in the third string goalie on the Rangers. Let's make a Bob Froese card as well, right? And that's what it would look like. So it's just kind of a neat little thing. I love those kinds of what-ifs, you know, like... This could have been a hockey card, but it wasn't, or this meant to be a hockey card. Kind of like a promo, but not even a promo. Yeah, that's that's weird. You go back to the same thought process as the Chelios one. Now, not only is the image not the same, the card doesn't even exist. Right, the card doesn't even exist. Yeah, there's not even a separate replacement card. It's just not part of the checklist. Another one that's interesting is that they did one of what they call the 9091 Upper Deck All-Rookie Team. And uh, this one was numbered out of 16,000 sheets. That's the one that's got Yager and Fedorov on it, right? It's got Yager, Fedorov, Ken Hodge, Eric Weinrich, Ed Belfort, and Rob Blake. And what's interesting about this is that... I know the Yager card is a different picture. That was the picture that was used on his 91-92 Upper Deck card. And the Belfour is the picture that's used on his 91-92 Upper Deck card. So basically what's kind of odd about these cards is that they have 90-91 borders. Again, I say cards, but they're really just the promotional sheet. They use the 90-91 borders, but they use the 91-92 photos. Yeah, it's just interesting how they 
like here buy this product none of this you'll get in it but buy it anyway <laughs> right yeah you can't collect find these, these cards all right i'd love to collect these cards i want all of these oh wait they don't exist but you can have these other ones and also have these holograms that pillars that have no faces have those too okay so the holograms sucked they made up for 9192 with way better holograms, but 9091, probably the only thing that really sucked about the 9091 upper deck set was the holograms. But we weren't buying them for the holograms. We were buying them because they were awesome hockey cards. The holograms were just, or stereograms as they called them, were just not that good. So, oh well, no one's perfect, especially out of the first try. You know my favorite one out of all those is the mm -hmm. Brett Hall, Mark Messier one. Because everyone I ever saw just looks like a smear. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, what What even is this? And there are different ones. Like Gretzky, there were three different ones. Like him standing there, him shooting, him stopping. And it's like, uh, other than the fact that I could see a person like sort of standing there. Mm -hmm. I don't know who this is. I assume it's Gretzky because it's a Kings jersey. And who else is it going to be? considering he's the spokesperson and he's on all the advertisement and everything else. But those were funny. And like you said, the following year, the award winner holograms, they did a much, much better job with those. Yeah, night and day. Night yeah. and day. At least for those. This first attempt at going all out on a full, full scale <laughs> kind of fell flat. And you're right. No. That's probably, you know, other than the various errors and, whether the variations were on purpose or accident, you know, other than those types of things, that's probably the biggest downfall to this were those holograms. Silly, silly holograms. I think that, like, if you're a hockey card collector and you're more of a modern hockey card collector, obviously we'd all love to have the old Parkhurst sets. And I think, like, if you're an older collector, you're probably going to go after those cards because they're the cards of players from your childhood even though i want to have the old parkhurst cards again when i see cards of the guys that i grew up watching and get maybe a little more excited about those cards not saying that i don't want all of them but i think that like if you were born after 1990 if you're like 20 and you're like well i wasn't even alive back then or whatever this is still a good set to have like if you collect modern upper deck cards it would be really cool to have all the sets going from 90-91 forward. Of course, it gets hard in the 2000s when they start short printing the young guns. But those first four or five or six upper deck sets are pretty inexpensive, especially this one. So I would say this is a must-have set. Unless you're like, say, oh, I only do vintage. I only do up until 1980. Then obviously you're not going to mess around with this set. But if you are somebody who loves hockey cards and you want to have a significant set in your collection, this is one of the most significant sets ever made of all time. If we were going to go back to the 1910-11 set and go all the way to now, I mean, th this this is right up there with 51-52 Parkhurst and, you know, 54-55 Tops. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. If you're going to start collecting hockey cards... This should be the cornerstone or the the main starter piece of any collection because it's got everything you you would possibly want. I mean, the sheer amount of Hall of Famers that are in here, and not only that, 
the Hall of Fame rookie cards that are in here. I mean, there's so many rookie. Like we said, there's like 170 some rookie cards total in this set, and the amount of those that are Hall of Famers is staggering. Not to mention you have the star rookie cards, um, the young gun cards, the World Junior cards. I mean, there's even this was the year before they came out with hockey heroes, but they had heroes of hockey. Mm-hmm. So they just kind of reversed it. So you can even get cards of old timers, you know, in here. And I always, I always liked that set. Cause it was kind of like the precursor to the hockey heroes, which became an insert set that were randomly put in rather than part of the uh, numbered checklist. But this has something for everybody in it. Not only that, it's great quality print. It's great quality photos. You know, all of the things that we talked about and mentioned already, this is probably one of the best and most recognizable sets that we've probably ever talked about on the show. Right. Upper Deck has gone back to that design many times with, like, retros and tributes and stuff like that. I mean, sure. It's I mean, maybe heck, not- five years later they did it. Mm-hmm. And then and, five years after that. Right. And then 2010, they had the whole retro insert set parallel that they did of these. So like you said, this is a very affordable set too. And, you know, those of you out there that are all, well, I, I only grade stuff. Well, you can get this stuff graded and you can find it graded. And it's still fairly cheap, even in the graded realm. I mean, heck, there's even on the population report, there's even two David Volick cards graded, if you can believe that. Both of them graded a 10. Why anybody would grade a David Volick card? I couldn't tell you. Especially considering his card, you don't even know what position he plays. It just says wing. Doesn't mm-hmm. say left wing, doesn't say right wing. Just says wing. It's not even his rookie card. And two people graded him. I'm not sure why. He's the most hated hockey player of all time in my head. Not Casparitis? So, no. David Volek, I hate him. For scoring um, that goal? Yes. We don't want to talk about that. But, like, even some of the bigger rookies, like, if you look at the Ed Belfour, I mean, PSA's pop report has 1,400, a little over 1,400 on it. You know, you look at, if you consider it his rookie card, the Jeremy Roenick card, there's 606 of those. Well, why it. wouldn't I consider it his rookie card? Well, some people don't. He didn't have a card before that. I mean... There was the Blackhawk team issue, but that was technically a photo album of cards that could be cut apart, but most people didn't cut apart. So I'm struggling to understand. There are a lot of people out there that get into the arguments over rookie cards, which we've had the discussion before of what's a real rookie card and what's not. And a lot of people don't consider some of these first upper deck cards as being necessarily a rookie card. I don't agree with them. But there are people that don't. What, so they would consider maybe the, the tops one the rookie card? I don't know. Huh. I've never really got into the discussion because when people say crazy stuff like that, I generally don't listen. The Yager card, 4,759 were graded. Wow, that's a lot. Here's a little fun fact about that Ed Belfour rookie card. The photo's actually from the 88-89 season, and he's wearing number 31. When Belfort came to the Blackhawks, so he spent 87-88 in the minors. 88-89, he was Darren Pang's backup. But then he got 
sent back to the miners when the Blackhawks acquired Elaine Chevrier. So the reason why I'm telling you this is then Belfour ultimately got loaned to Team Canada for a year when he came back at the end of the 89-90 season to gave him number 30, and that's when he had that badass mask, right? But this has him in like a Cooper helmet with a, a cage on the front. Right, and he's got like a plain white helmet. Yeah, and he's got the silver pads. So it's interesting that this photo shows him from 88-89. The Bowman rookie card of his shows him from the 89-90 playoffs because he's got the eagle mask. But in this set, the upper deck set, he's from 88-89. Just kind of a neat thing. Kind of a neat uh, little tidbit. I mean, it's got a Matt Sundin card from the 89 draft. He was expected to play in 90-91, so upper deck said, all right, let's put him in this set. We just have a draft day photos of him. Let's just put him in because he's probably going to play this season. And that was the thing, is that they put in cards of guys that were probably going to play. Some of them didn't really play. Some of them did. And so, you know, they look really smart for putting in cards of, like, Ed Belfour and then later putting in a card of Pavel Bure from the junior championships as one of the young guns. That's what you call a fun fact, but it actually is a fun fact and not ironically. So anything else you want to say about this before we wrap this one up? No, I think we've said everything we needed to say about this set. And if you guys out there enjoy this set and like this set, leave a comment for us and let us know. Or if you have any other interesting tidbits of information that maybe we left out, feel free to share. Well, all right then. Thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. And until next time, collect what you like. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at Puck Junk.